I'm Earl at thelogbook.com, and I'm here to tell you the logbook has a new Patronus. No, sorry, Patreon. The logbook has a new Patreon. Basically, if you like what the logbook does, the ever-expanding site, the monthly and in some cases daily podcasts, and the book spinoffs from both, you can help us keep going by becoming our patron at Patreon. There are goodies in it for you from access to show notes, to trading cards, to even having me do voice work for you. And you get to help me and the logbook do what we do every night, trying to take over the world and turn it into a great big geekosphere. Thanks, as always, for listening, for your feedback, and for your support. Ah, the late 70s and early 80s. The boom years of the video game industry. And my game system was the Magnavox Odyssey 2. Sleek, stylish, futuristic, and totally underappreciated. Let's change that. I'll dig through the Odyssey 2 library, introduce you to each game, offer a few of my own expanded memories of playing them back in the day, and we'll see if those games hold up today. I'm Earl Green, and this is Select Game. Everybody out of the Yule Pool. It's time for the Select Game Christmas Special. Featuring Jefferson Starship. No, I'm not going to do that to you. (laughs) And Harvey Corman. Beatrice Arthur. Okay, enough of that. (laughs) Now, the reason I say everyone out of the Yule Pool is that I am recording the Select Game Christmas Special in the middle of July. And why? Insomnia. Insomnia. It is something like 6.30 in the morning, way earlier than I normally get up to go to work. But I couldn't sleep, and I've kind of had the outline for the select game Christmas special floating around in my head for quite some time, and I thought, you know... What the hell? It's the middle of July. I'll record the Christmas special. Why not? What's so special about this episode is that it's barely going to be about the Odyssey 2. However, the starting point of this is a letter that I once wrote to Odyssey 2 Adventure magazine. Odyssey 2 Adventure was the official quote-unquote fan club marketing organ newsletter Produced by Magnavox and Philips. Uh, Sort of in the same vein as Atari Age, which was in circulation at roughly the same time. I, of course, was a loyal subscriber to Odyssey 2 Adventure, as I am sure were many of you. It uh, It was a magazine with an incredibly limited scope, because basically what this magazine was discussing was... Odyssey 2 and nothing but Odyssey 2. However, it is a primary research source for this podcast because there are announcements and insights and occasional interviews that simply didn't get much of a mention anywhere else. The 
The glut of video gaming magazines in the early 80s that arrived quickly on the heels of electronic games didn't tend to be terribly favorable to the Odyssey 2. It was always seen as something of an also-ran. I mean, if Magnavox or Philips bought ad space, they'd go for it. Hey, we'll take your money. Which, you know, that's why you're publishing the magazine, right? But getting good press was a whole different ball of metaphorical wax. Which, you know, metaphorical wax just gets everywhere. I have no idea where I was going with that. Maybe I shouldn't be recording a podcast at 6.30 in the morning. The point being that the Odyssey 2 was such an underdog, such an also-ran, that Magnavox basically had to create its own press. I... Strongly suspect that the same marketing agency that was behind the Odyssey 2 packaging and advertising, Bradford and Friends, I'm going to say that because I'm tired of mispronouncing the other partner's name. If, in fact, any member of that family is aware of this podcast's existence, they probably curse me every time I speak it. Bradford and Buddies! So, I have very little doubt that uh, the same agency was involved with the Odyssey 2 Adventure magazine because it was crawling with that wonderful Ron Bradford artwork style that was part and parcel of the packaging of the Odyssey 2 library. One thing you have to say for the Odyssey 2 library is there was a remarkable consistency in the packaging. You know, at least until you get to the homebrews and then it's crazy pants. Uh, I, I don't think any two of mine look even vaguely similar. And probably not vaguely similar to the packaging style of the 70s or 80s. There you have it. Odyssey 2 Adventure magazine had a an address where you could write in. And I did so frequently because you know, by God I was 10 years old and I had things on my mind. <laughs> I once wrote a, I once wrote two very lengthy letters to Odyssey 2 Adventure because it was like finally I have an address. You know, I can reach these people. These two letters basically amounted to um, game design documents from the mind of a 10-year-old, which, you know, I'm sure I was not the only 10-year-old doing that, and I'm sure they were all equally <laughs> equally welcome in the uh, Odyssey 2 Adventure editorial offices, such as they were. One of these letters, I sat down at my mother's electric typewriter and spent much time composing and then correcting and then mailing off. One of these letters was basically, you know, why why don't you guys do arcade games? Because at the time, Turtles had not been released, which was the sole coin-op port 
in the first party Magnavox Philips library for the Odyssey 2. Turtles hadn't been done yet, although I'm sure by that point it was in the timeline. It, you know, it was in the pipeline. It was in the timeline. Yeah, I really shouldn't be recording a podcast at 6.30 in the morning in the middle of July for Christmas. Yeah. One of the things I proposed was based on a, you know, an average 10-year-old's understanding of the industry, which is to say I had no understanding of the industry, but I had just that summer in 1982, I had just that summer gone on a vacation with my family to a fishing resort on the White River in north-central Arkansas called Gaston's. I believe it still exists. Uh, Maybe I should look that up before I'm bold enough to say that. It may have changed hands, it may have changed names, but it was a, uh, it was quite a tourist trap. It was a nice place. They had cabins you could rent. They had fishing boats you could rent. Uh, you You could hire a guide for the day to help you out with that, which was probably a good idea because fishing was, uh, not my thing. Still not my thing. I like fish. I don't really like to pull them out of the water and watch them die. However, in this case, I will say that the White River in north central Arkansas is home to the most delicious rainbow trout. So before I go all, you know, before I go all hippie on you, oh, I don't like to kill my food. Uh, rainbow trout is really good. I was just not very good at catching it. Another thing I was not very good at was reminding my parents on that first day of our fishing vacation that no one had put sunscreen on me. I'm sure you can see where this is going. That first day out, I think I actually did catch two or three fish. So maybe I should backpedal a little bit on my claim that I can't fish worth crap. I did manage to catch a few trout. Which, the great thing about Gaston's was, you take your catch to the uh, to the restaurant on site. You get to, uh, you, they will expertly prepare and cook what you catch and feed it to you. It's kind of a neat deal. Of course, I'm describing the state of the place in 1982, if indeed it still exists. I don't know if they still operate in that fashion. So, needless to say, the price tag for the two or three delicious rainbow trout that I caught on that first day out on the river was that I got baked. We are talking red as a tomato. We're talking probably just this side of sun poisoning. Um, And it's one of those cases where between my mother and my father, each one of them thought that the other had remembered to put sunscreen on me. We got back to our cabin and got in from the heat, you know, got into air conditioning, and all of a sudden, uh, I hurt a lot. I would probably go so far as to say that tears were probably shed on this occasion by yours truly because this hurt a lot. And my mother was livid because 
you know, there went the vacation. I obviously was not going to go fishing again. I mean, what were they going to do? Were they going to, uh, you know, stick long sleeves on me in the middle of July? It wasn't going to happen. So what was I going to do for the rest of my vacation? And keep in mind, what was my mom going to do for the rest of the vacation? Because uh, I obviously couldn't, you know, they weren't going to go fishing all day and leave me alone in the cabin. I mean, I probably would have been okay with that. I probably would have uh, doodled and sketched and slept. But then, as now, uh, you know, leaving your kid alone in a room for about 10 hours unattended, just uh, polite society doesn't frown on that sort of thing. So whatever I wound up doing to occupy my time is pretty much a given that my mom was going to be doing the same thing. Enter the game room at Gaston's. Gaston's had a small, it, it, it was its own little self-contained building with windows on all but one side. And it was between the place where you rented the boats and where you launched the boats and the restaurant. And it was... This little self-contained building was probably smaller than the living room of my house, which I am pacing around in now as I recount this story. And this game room had two or three pinball tables in it. I don't remember which ones, sadly. That's the sort of detail I kind of wish I remembered. I was just never that into pinball. It had a Rockola jukebox, and then it had a row of three... Rockola video games. Now, Rockola is a jukebox manufacturer and always has been. But, seeing as they had already made inroads into the coin-operated amusement business by way of their, you know, unshakable, unflappable line of jukeboxes that pretty much ruled the industry in the United States of America, Rockola evidently decided that they knew what it took to survive in the coin-op amusement business. And so we are going to get into coin-operated video games as well as jukeboxes. It was obvious that, uh, you know, as far out of the way as Gaston's was, they had, you know, they probably had one vendor, you know, one distributor that... uh, included the fishing resort as part of their route. So the games were actually fairly fresh, fairly new, and I had not heard of any of them before. The three games in question were Fantasy, Warp Warp, which was the American version of the Japanese game Warp and Warp. Believe me, it makes about as much sense either way. And Eyes. All three of these were distributed in the United States under license by Rockola. Each of these three games originated from different different manufacturers and developers elsewhere. Fantasy was a very, very early arcade game from SNK. Yes, that SNK. Fantasy was released in 1980. Actually, 
No, wait, wait, hang on a second. The logbook's got this. The logbook's got this. Because I know that there is, in fact, a, uh, a date in the logbook timeline for the release of Fantasy. So let me look it up on my own website. What a nifty resource to have. Nifty bordering on Spiffy. Okay. Warporp and Fantasy were both released in 1981 in America by Rockola. These dates are derived from the first date of use in commerce and the copyright filings for each game. So, I can tell you with reasonable certainty that Warp Warp was introduced in America on July 10th, 1981, about a year before I first encountered it. Fantasy was released on or around November 25th, 1981. Chances are both of these games had been on site maybe as much as eight to nine months before I encountered them. Fantasy was a, uh, like I said, it was a game created in Japan by SNK, and it was also, SNK was also responsible for a little game called Vanguard, which was released by Centuri in North America. I'm going to try to find the release date for Vanguard just to uh, not really so much compare and contrast as to, as... Context. Context. There's the word I'm looking for. I really shouldn't be recording a podcast at 6.45 in the morning. Vanguard. Do I have a date for Vanguard? Yes, I do. Okay, Vanguard was released in August of 1981. Middle of August 1981. The game room at Gaston's did not have a Vanguard machine. I, and I had, I had seen Vanguard already locally. But what I did not know was that Vanguard and Fantasy were created both by SNK and they were the first arcade video games. So technically Vanguard, since it came out first, was the first arcade video game to include the feature where if you use up all of your lives, you can put another quarter in the slot before a countdown timer expires and continue from where you left off. Excuse me. Fantasy also included that feature, which is at the heart of this story. I'm sure my mom kind of rolled her eyes that, you know, my my portion of this vacation, and therefore her portion of this vacation, consisted of getting out of the house, getting away from the video games, getting away from the computer, because by this point I had a, a Franklin Ace 1000 at home. So I was getting my my Apple II clone fix day in and day out. But I'm sure she was happy to get away from all that and go someplace beautiful and play video games. I am sure she was thrilled. However, there is a happy ending to this story. We both took a shine immensely to the game Fantasy. Fantasy is a game in which the player plays the part of an unnamed hero whose job is to rescue Sherry, apparently his lady friend, although it it seems at the beginning of the game like they've just met. 
either that or this is the most you know, non-committal relationship <laughs> in the history of sweeping romance because <laughs> you know we're supposed to be rescuing Shuri so we're supposed to believe that our hero is uh, you know is so smitten with this with this lady that he will do anything to rescue her from the surprisingly <laughs> surprisingly well-equipped pirates who then apparently lose her to surprisingly backward natives but very talkative natives fantasy had speech synthesis some very primitive speech synthesis actually I'm not even sure it's synthesis I'm pretty sure it was digitized speech because it doesn't it doesn't really strike me as being synthetic it strikes me as being a digitized recording of human speech and I am really really convinced that it is the human speech of whoever happened to be in the office at either SNK or Rockola whoever did the localization for this game to uh, prepare it for the English speaking world yeah I think they went up front you know hey receptionist hey delivery guy come back here Record some dialogue. <laughs> but Fantasy was a really interesting, really deep game for its time because it has several levels. Several levels that are distinctly different from one another requiring whole different methods of play. That was really unusual. In 1981, we were accustomed to you know, maze changes on Ms. Pac-Man. We were accustomed to Mario having to deal with a new and different kind of level, but still basically a climbing platform game in Donkey Kong. That stuff was not new. Same basic idea, variations on a theme. Fantasy was not variations on a theme. It was wildly different from stage to stage. You know, you start out flying a balloon, and then next thing you're sword fighting with the natives. And then you're flying a balloon again and dodging projectiles. And then you're running through the jungle, evading tigers. I, I really don't know if this is a coordinated effort between the nameless pirates, the nameless natives, and that tiger, and whoever keeps throwing those fireballs at you. But, you know, there are, there are wide-ranging forces opposed against you, <laughs> to use literary terms. And it's, uh, it's a tough game. It's a tough game. It would be nearly impossible to get to the end of the game without that continue feature, as you're about to find out, because it's time to play fantasy. Fantasy is really the the big prize here, the big fish to talk about. This is probably my all-time favorite arcade game for reasons that have virtually nothing to do with the game itself. Uh, you, you start out on a title screen on an island. You and your, uh, your lady friend and pirates almost immediately come to kidnap her. And you have to rescue her from the most unlikely series of scenarios. Let's just play. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. 
It's like they've just met. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> every expense was spared in the voice acting department. <laughs> Okay, so I landed on the ship. And I got killed by the cannonball. Oh, little main glitch there. Sorry. Come get me, natives. What is that song? It's, it's something from the movie soundtrack, because I remember hearing that performed by an orchestra at some point, and I've never figured out which movie. Okay, now here you're dodging the birds. Okay, well, I'm not dodging the birds. I'm dodging the birds very badly. You kind of have to have nerves of steel on this one and not, not do a lot of sudden movement. Actually... Oh, the gorilla beamed himself with a coconut. The end. All right. To extend play, insert coin and press start button within 10 seconds. How are you? Oh, I didn't do it within 10 seconds. I suck. Because I was sitting there reading. Ah! That's right, Obi. So... Okay, we're back to <laughs> back to square one. I'm sorry about that. All right. Basically, you have a a cannon mounted in the center of the screen that will fire at you automatically, change direction to follow you, but it can only shoot straight up, straight down, straight left, straight right. You're only going to get killed by it if you're in its direct line of fire. Okay, we're back to dodging birds and coconuts. Oh, they got me. Doing better on this game than I was the first time around. Yeah, the secret to the third stage is be conservative with your movement. Don't be all over the place because that is a surefire way to get killed. Not that I'm really uh, lacking in the getting killed department here. But I'm keeping it very... Uh, limiting my movements somewhat. The end. Okay, this time I'm going to continue from where I left off instead of talking long enough to uh, lose my 10 second window. And the gorilla helpfully uh, downed one of the birds with a coconut and dropped a coconut on his own head. Oh, there I go again. Oh, finally. Thank goodness. 
Okay, this stage is somewhat like, um... It's rather like kangaroo. Except that I suck at it. I could play kangaroo better than this. It's like kangaroo in that there is a character at the top who is dropping, uh, dropping projectiles on you. Apples. Fruit, mainly. Or is attempting to do so. You have to get to the top. Save the girl, except... <laughs> oh! And then you spend this whole next screen running through the jungle, evading tigers and fireballs, because surely tigers and fireballs are the most prevalent dangers in the jungle today. And it plays Funky Town by Lip Sync. I personally find that hilarious. I now forever have this, you know, one of these uh, kind of psychoacoustic associations, you know, where if I ever happen to be in a jungle, first thing I'm going to think of is Funky Town and dodging fireballs and tigers. I guess there are natives in the trees throwing the fireballs at you. I, I'm not sure of the logic. Here we are at the native village. You can't attack from above or below, which is very frustrating. You have to attack from on the side. Side on. If you try to attack from above or below, it just gets you killed. For the record, at the time I first encountered this game, I. <laughs> I was aware of Funky Town as a song. And now a helicopter kidnaps the girl. Uh, who the hell is kidnapping the girl? I mean, they're employing a variety of <laughs> mismatched options in keeping her kidnapped. Okay. Helicopter stage. Dodging helicopters. Uh, it, it, it's a lot like dodging the birds. Nerves of steel are required. Or at least patience. Keep your movements simple. Nothing crazy. Oh, they actually got me. Yeah, for a second I thought I was actually going to clear this stage without, uh, without getting killed. There's one helicopter out of each triad of helicopters that will suddenly start moving directly up and down and kill you. Let's go. 
it's just a matter of patience and not panicking. Oh, and not sucking. Okay, are you keeping count of how many virtual quarters I've pumped into this thing? It's a lot. A lot. Okay, this is an interesting stage because you're you're still dealing with the helicopter dodging mechanics, but you're trying to lure the helicopters over to your side of the screen because the cannon follows you the cannon works a lot like the cannon on the ship in the first stage it swivels and follows you and this cannon unlike the cannon in the second stage can fire at diagonals which is why I keep dying The bridge is opening. I can go rescue the girl. I love you. I love you, too. Well, that's great. I mean, we just met. Hi, how are you? And the great thing is, they are about to meet how again. I'm fine, thank you. you like, none of that happened. Ah! That's fantasy for you. At this point, we're on rinse and repeat. The game... <laughs> the game continues. So, there you have it. The arcade game Fantasy, released in late 1981 in America by Rockola. Originated in Japan, possibly earlier in the year or the year before, by SNK. The interesting thing about fantasy was that the challenge of the different, you know, the different methods of play required on different stages got me hooked. The story got my mother hooked. And I'm pretty sure we pumped 20 bucks either into that game or into all of the video games in this game room. Because once she was hooked into this, my mom wanted to see if this game had an end, and if so, what it was. And, of course, as you just heard, it did indeed have an ending. And, you know, a nice one, a simple one, but that is that is what my mother wanted to see. And so, it was kind of interesting. Yeah, I'm sure she was just thrilled beyond all possible measures of belief that, you know, we had booked and paid for this nice fishing vacation and here we were playing video games. But we both liked this one a lot. We both liked it a lot. By this point, you know, I've talked about my mom and I playing Odyssey 2 quite a bit. By this point, she was working full-time. She was very, very busy. And the days of playing video games together had kind of uh, 
It kind of faded into the past. So in some ways this is kind of like my last great video game memory that involves playing with my mother because she uh, she left us five years later. Well, I say she left us. I should clarify. She died of cancer five years later. It wasn't her idea to leave us. And, she, you know, I... Yeah, what a... That's... Yeah, it's one thing to misphrase something. It's um, quite another to terribly misphrase it. Yeah, she didn't... Uh, she didn't leave us and go somewhere else. She, uh, you know... She left the realm put it politely <clears throat> so that is a uh, that is a cherished memory it's kind of weird to have you know so many of your family memories revolve around video games I suppose but that one is a uh, that one's a bit of a flashpoint for me I remember it quite well Right next to the fantasy machine in the Gaston's game room, sponsored by Rockola, was Warp Warp, which, you know, it was obviously some sort of a, you know, kind of a science fiction-y, spacey game. It involved monsters of some description, or as I, as I have tended to call them, big-tongued space froggies. Um, if you're interested... Uh, in my Redbubble store, I actually have a t-shirt of the Warp Warp Monsters. Which is uh, pixel art that I derived from main screenshots quite some time back. Really had no idea what I was going to do with it. Because I used to have, uh, in the olden days of the logbook.com, before the site became a little bit more focused and a little less, you know, hey, let's do everything absolutely everything that Earl's interested in. There was a section called the Arcade Artwork Archive, or the Triple A, as I strenuously tried to get everyone to call it. And basically it involved scans of marquee art and side art and giant blow-ups of, you know, pixelated characters from the games themselves. And... Warp Warp is one where I actually acquired a marquee for it, scanned it, cleaned it up to the best of my paint shop pro abilities, you know, around <laughs> 2006 or so. And, uh, yeah. Warp Warp is perhaps not quite as compelling as fantasy, although as I have, as I rediscovered Warp Warp, First, through the incredibly obscure import PlayStation 1 compilation, Namco Museum Encore. And then later through MAME emulation. I, I discovered I liked Warp Warp more than I may have initially. It's quite addictive. It's not easy. I'm not very good at it. As you're about to find out. Let's play. Warp Warp is actually a Namco game, and it's it's one of these uh, one of these roll of the dice stories in the video game industry that Rockola was given an opportunity to uh, license a new slash upcoming Namco title, and it picked Warp Warp. 
instead of you know instead of something else the, you know this game could have gone to Atari so basically in the first stage of the game you are in you know sort of a wide open arena with a a pair of horizontal bars in the middle and all sorts of critters big-tongued space froggies as I call them are uh, waddling around they start out yellow they get orange uh, they become orange and then they become red the further down the you know the warm or angry part of the color wheel they get the more dangerous they are in the second stage you have a more clearly defined maze and instead of firing a gun you are dropping bombs and the goal of the game is to survive long enough to activate the warp portal, the two horizontal bars in the middle of the screen, so you can go to the next stage. I'll warn you, I'm really not that great at this game. Now, I have talked many times about Arcadia Retrocade, sort of my home arcade. No, well, not my home arcade hangout, but that makes it sound like it's here at my house. It's not. It's about 40 minutes away. Arcadia Retrocade does have a warp warp machine in wonderful shape. And I remember when that showed up, I was immediately grilling the place's poor beleaguered owner, who certainly owes me no answers to any of my questions. Where did you get this? Because I was tantalized by the possibility that perhaps he had acquired the machine that I had played as a kid, because... You know, I doubt there were that many warp warp machines in circulation. Gotcha. You can also kill all the critters and advance in the game. You don't advance in the game that way. That's called getting right in the line of fire and dying. That didn't last long. This is Warp Warp. I love it. It's a fun game. It's just it's a brutal game. It's a it's a quarter grabber. In fact, let's play it again. I'm gonna try to do better. This is costing me twenty five cents. Oh! Wow! I lived. I kind of got stuck there. <laughs> Bonus frog, as I call him. Hey, it's time to warp and warp some more. Oh, I oh I missed my window. I'm in deep, deep space froggy doo-doo. Uh, what I'm actually still doing alive at this point, I don't know. I got a bunch of orange space froggies after me. Yeah, yeah, I think we should warp and warp. Crap, they're all red and I'm dead. I love this game. Oh, he escaped! I didn't get him, he escaped. 
Well, that didn't end well. I'm not even going to get off the first screen this time. Yeah, let's play it again. Do it even better this time. Yeah. Okay, I should have stopped at the first game. I love Warp Warp. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very strange little game. It's very unique. I think that's why I like it. That and I am... I am a sucker for Namco's output. I really am. There, you know, there's no two ways around that. Namco's stuff. I mean, starting with QDQ or GB or or however far back you want to go, and going all the way up to say Katamari Damashi. I love Namco's games. They are uh, they're very unique. They're very unique, and while they come from a more widely varied stable of designers than, say, Nintendo's games, which sometimes I think Nintendo's strategy is to freeze Miyamoto in Carbonite and only let him out when he has an idea and then immediately put him away again because, God, we don't know what we're going to do without Miyamoto... Um, Namco has a a wider stable of designers and they come up with weird and wonderful ideas that still have a sort of cohesive yeah I wouldn't call it unity but there's you can definitely tell a Namco game I, I always kind of suspected that Warp Warp you know even when I was a kid I suspected that Warp Warp was cut from something of the same cloth as Pac-Man. And it wasn't until later, with the advent of emulation, when you can sit and stare at the attract modes, you know, without people pushing you out of the way to play the game. And, you know, you can actually see, oh wait, this is a Namco game. This is, in fact, a Namco game. But it was also a Rockola game. Which is how it came to be in the fabled game room at Gaston's on the White River. All right, well, that was your garden variety warpin' and warpin' going on. The kind of the the dark horse not-so-favorite in the room at Gaston's game room was a game called Eyes, also released in 1981 by Rockola. In fact, I wonder if there is... I wonder if there's an entry on the logbook timeline for eyes. I don't think there is, but I'll check. Let me do a search for Rockola. See what I come up with. Oh, I do have a date. Okay. Okay, eyes was a much newer game. My mistake. I misspoke. It was released in the United States on April 27th, 1982. Now, whereas Warp Warp was a Namco concoction and fantasy emerged from those mad game-making labs at SNK. I don't know if they're really labs, but it's it's an interesting conceit. Eyes originates with a much more obscure organization than either one of those, a company called Digitrex Techstar. I mean, that... <laughs> as company names go, wow. Digitrex Techstar. You know, this is like one of these choose one word from each column and come up with the name of your 
of your tech company. <laughs> if your first name begins with this letter, choose this word from this column, and you wind up with Digitrex Techstar. Eyes is a bit more obviously an attempt to cash in on Pac-Man fever while still getting a little bit of, uh, of shooting going. However, it's, uh, it's kind of my least favorite of the three. It's predictable, and it's just not that interesting. Eyes is also coming as late as 1982. Actually, let me uh, I will read this directly from what I already wrote several years ago on the logbook timeline of geek history. Since many arcades were already flooded with maze games, Eyes seemed to disappear from most arcades in a blink. <laughs> I see what I did there. This was one of Rockola's final attempts to get into the coin-op video game business. That is an important thing to point out. Rockola got in while it was hot and got out as soon as they figured out that the audience kind of, uh, kind of demanded more than Eyes. Let's play Eyes very briefly and... Uh, don't blink. We'll see what we come up with on the other side. This is uh, <laughs> this is kind of the dark horse of the uh, the Gaston's Rockola game room, but very simple. You are an eyeball, and you can shoot things. The other things can shoot at you. Oh, they got me. There's a maze. And it's filled with something that looks like bow ties. Um, for, for the record, it appears that your little eyeball is wearing a fez. So, Doctor Who fans, we have a, uh, a game here involving bow ties and fezes. Not saying, I'm just saying. You have to shoot all of the bow tie shaped objects in the maze and avoid being shot by the other eyeballs which I'm really lousy at the interestingly random sound effects on this game ah cleared the maze Okay, the second stage food, or whatever you want to call it, is not bow ties. It's little green undulating circles. And that's it. Oh, hey. I am in the Hall of Fame. Not bad for uh, not having played this in quite some time. That's correct, Obi. I am dad. So that's eyes for you. There really isn't much to it. It's kind of it's obviously a Pac-Man variant. And not a uh <laughs> perhaps not a terribly interesting one. But it is one of those games that was licensed by Rockola and happened to be at the venue in question. So, eyes. There you have it. I, <laughs> I 
I guess you can tell that I really wasn't fascinated enough by eyes to stick with it and uh, and play it for a longer period of time as I was with Fantasy or even Warp Warp. Eyes just, uh, you know, it's one of those things, if that was the best Rockola was going to do, they didn't, this was not a business they needed to be in. Bringing this back around to the Odyssey too, because I'm sure you're wondering, you know, what the hell the connection is there. I wrote a lengthy letter on 8.5 by 11 paper with an electric typewriter down in my mom's home office, which was at this point no longer used. She had uh, she had tried to work from home when I was a little, little kid, which is something I can uh, definitely, something that's somewhere that I can definitely connect with her in my own later life as a parent. But I wrote this lengthy letter describing each game, you know, as best I remembered it to the Odyssey 2 adventure team as if they were the people making the games. You know, a little spoiler here, they weren't. And I begged and beseeched them to do a home version of Fantasy or Warp Warp or Eyes for the Odyssey 2. <laughs> I don't think I ever, I don't think I got a reply on that occasion because I'm sure they were flooded with, you know, why can't you guys do Pac-Man? Well, we, you know, we didn't need Pac-Man on the Odyssey 2. We had a better game than that. It just got sued off the market. The thing now is to turn around and look at what the Odyssey 2 was capable of. To figure out if any of these three games could have been translated for the Odyssey 2. Let's start with Fantasy. Fantasy is a game with a lot of fluid, fine-grained movement, especially in stages such as the ones where you're dodging the birds in your balloon. That would not have translated well a to a horizontal screen and B to the Odyssey 2's somewhat limited graphics set and capabilities. The characters would have had to have been made so small on the screen that it would have been difficult for the Odyssey to make them look like anything. I mean, the, you know, what would the gorilla have been? You know, your standard Odyssey 2 humanoid? Um, no. Add to that the fact that you had climbing game stages and flying game stages and all of that stuff. Now the funny thing is there are Odyssey 2 games with helicopters. There are Odyssey 2 games with balloons, at least in South America. Because they had a, uh, a game that was basically the Odyssey 2 version of the coin-op crazy balloon, just under a different name. But, yeah, it's kind of interesting that that is the modus operandi before the Odyssey 2 in any territory is, you know, do a near-beer version of something, but for God's sake, change the name so we don't get sued. So there were precedents for some of this stuff. I don't know if the Odyssey 2 could have done a version of Fantasy very well. There was an unfinished, unreleased version of Fantasy for the TI-99 for a computer. And since the TI-99 for a computer shares a graphics chip with the ColecoVision. There was several years back, and I forget the exact title. I'll have to look it up and include it in the uh, include it in the links. There was a ColecoVision version of Fantasy. I don't recall if it included all of the stages. I do recall that it was released by Good Deal Games. My friend Michael Thomason at Good Deal Games. Uh, he didn't program it, but he does release homebrews for various authors, and that was... That was the distributor for that particular game for the ColecoVision. So there have been home versions of Fantasy, but overall, it is not a popular enough game to have merited attention back in the day. 
In the early 2000s, when I began collecting arcade marquees as a display item, a decorative display item, I was fixated on finding a fantasy marquee. In fact, I was fixated on finding, and I did eventually acquire, a Warp Warp marquee. There were various distributors that I, you know, various uh, vintage amusements distributors that I dealt with on a fairly frequent basis on eBay back at the height of me spending unwisely and often on such things, which doesn't happen now. One of the distributors I asked, you know, do you ever run across a marquee for the arcade game Fantasy? You know, and I also inquired about, you know, do you ever run across a board for this? I, as bad as I am about electronics, you know, as far as actually constructing constructing them and building things around them, if I could acquire a board, I was going to try to build a machine if I had to, because I have a I have one of the arcade distributor flyers for the game, so. You know, I could try to replicate the side art from that. I had, at one time, a uh, control panel with the control panel overlay for Fantasy, which is an item that I donated along with one of the two Fantasy marquees that I did eventually acquire. I donated that to Arcadia Retrocade at the beginning of this year, um, along with a, a good chunk of the rest of my video game collection because I figured Shay had a much better chance of finding a board and putting a machine together than I did with my increasingly limited resources. What I was told by one of the distributors that I asked to keep an eye out for fantasy marquees or fantasy uh, printed circuit boards, basically the guts of the game, I was told that fantasy was extremely unpopular you know, this was someone who had been in the business for a long time. What he told me was that fantasy had been extremely unpopular, and most of the fantasy machines that were at one time in circulation had almost certainly been converted to other games. There you have it. One of my all-time favorite arcade games merited no one's attention. Could Warp Warp have been translated for play on the Odyssey 2? I think this is altogether far more likely. Now, it might have wound up looking something like Casey Munchkin, a cross between Casey Munchkin and Berserk. I think Warp Warp could have been done on the Odyssey 2. You know, the Odyssey 2 already has a, a pretty good <laughs> pretty good facility for drawing the standard Odyssey 2 humanoid. You know, have him running away from something like the monsters in Casey Munchkin and Man, you could have pissed Namco off in a whole new way all over again. Warp Warp, I think, really could have been done and could have been a lot of fun on the Odyssey 2. And I would love to <laughs> I would love to have seen it as a first party game, just to see what artwork, what depiction of these creatures were <laughs> attached <laughs> to the game in that format. Eyes would have been an even more likely fit. Although I I don't think the Odyssey 2 particularly needed eyes. I think my childhood memories of eyes were conflated with how much I liked Warp Warp and Fantasy. And, you know, I remembered eyes, you know, in this flashpoint memory as being in the same room. So obviously it was an awesome game because this was a room full of awesome games, you know, such as those pinball tables that I can't even remember. And, you know, eyes could have been done on the Odyssey 2. I mean, it would have been Casey Munchkin with a gun. <laughs> I actually, it would have been fun to put it out under that title. Instead of licensing eyes, just release Casey Munchkin with a gun. 
Casey's back. <laughs> Boy, does he look pissed. <laughs> Sue this, baby. Anyway, <laughs> I really shouldn't try to record podcast in July for Christmas at 7 in the morning. Eyes could have been done on the Odyssey, too, but <clears throat> who cares? It's eyes. <laughs> I'm sorry. This, this is one. This is one case where I realize that my childhood memories are at variance with reality. So sadly, no arcade ports of the Gaston's Game Room for the Odyssey 2, and no real reason there should have been. I'm, you know, I'm sure that by 1982, Magnavox or Philips realized, uh, you know, they were in trouble. They were being outclassed routinely because on the Atari 2600 front you had General Computer Corporation, GCC, the originators of Ms. Pac-Man in the arcade. Uh, they now routinely had their teams cranking out games for the 2600 that certainly seemed to exceed the graphical expectations set up by the early years of that machine. By 1982, you had the Atari 5200, you had the ColecoVision, you had Vectrex, you had Intellivision, you had Arcadia 2001, but who cares? Um, (laughs) You had so much competition for coin-op titles, and ColecoVision really would have been where I would expect to have seen any of these games appear in cartridge form, because ColecoVision had this wonderful knack for identifying slightly obscure, maybe second string titles that were a ridiculous amount of fun, like Venture or Ladybug. I would say Mousetrap, but I hate Mousetrap, who cares? Um, So if any of these games, I mean, if you're going to write to any console manufacturer and say, hey, would you look into these coin ops as a first party title? Uh, Coleco really should have been who I had written, but I did not have a ColecoVision at the time. I had no expectation of getting a ColecoVision. And, you know, by golly, I was an I was an Odyssey 2 fan, and I wanted these games on my machine. I think on some level, if I might psychoanalyze myself for a minute, I imagined that... Uh, Perhaps if these games were on the Odyssey 2, maybe I could actually con my mother into playing video games with me again. As it is, those days were, you know, the opportunity for that to happen. As a uh, window that was closing rapidly, none of us knew it at the time. One of the great delights I have had in recording this podcast in the past year is introducing my son to the Odyssey 2 and actually playing two-player games with another person. Even if he's not that terribly into it, you know, some of the games we've played, he, uh, he really brings to the table the, the delightful unpredictability of having a second player. You, you know, you can, I can sit there and tell him until I'm blue in the face, uh, you know, go challenge the dragon while I get the ring. It doesn't mean he's going to do that or knows how to do it. And so that that's really become one of my favorite elements of the of select game is uh, you know you you're hearing me sharing this stuff with my kid for the first time. And you really, when you are a kid, you never know, do you? I mean, you uh, you don't know when you're going to lose player two because when you're the kid, you're player one. That's it for the select game Christmas special. Hope you've enjoyed this uh, deviation from the norm. (laughs) 
to put it mildly. I'll have to I'll have to figure out a a similar but different detour to deal with for next year's Christmas special. In the meantime, hey, you know, if anyone wants to do an Odyssey 2 homebrew of fantasy or warp warp, give me a shout. I will happily do the cover artwork for those. Merry Christmas. That's all the time we have for the Select Game Podcast. You can hear Select Game on iTunes, Stitcher, and throwbacknetwork.net. And you can also subscribe through the RSS feed. You'll find the podcast itself and occasional goodies associated with it at www.thelogbook.com slash selectgame. If you really dig Select Game, also check out the 365-day-a-year Escape Pod Geek History Podcast at thelogbook.com. And donations toward the site's upkeep are always gladly accepted at PayPal, or via my Amazon wish lists. You can also support the podcast by buying select game t-shirts and other goodies at redbubble.com. Look under user the logbook. Phosphor.fossils, a comprehensive timeline of the golden era of video games, including the Odyssey 2, can be downloaded at thelogbook.com, which is also where you can find the books I've written about Doctor Who, Warp 1 and Warp 2. Feel free to drop me a line at the Facebook page for thelogbook.com, via Twitter at logbookguy, or email me at earl at thelogbook.com. Select Game Expanded Memories of the Odyssey 2 is a production of thelogbook.com and was written and produced by Earl Green. Music performed by Kasatochi, available for free download at thelogbook.com.